machines flew over northern and western Germany last night. It's a muggy summer day in 1939 on the porch of the Gimbel family's New Jersey beach house. Bernie Gimbel, the president of Gimbel Brothers, idly tosses a tennis ball from one hand to the other. His younger brother Fred is talking about a woman he chatted up at a nightclub in Greenwich Village. Bernie, she's a thoughtful Cuban beauty. We talked about what it would be like if the U.S. got involved in the war in Europe. She talked about what it was like as a kid during the violent uprisings in her country. She remembers the shortages. Bernie is only half listening. Fred's always talking about women. And that got me thinking. Maybe we should plan ahead for that sort of thing. You know, just in case we get into this war. Bernie takes his feet off the wicker ottoman and sits up straight. The mention of preparing for war has caught his interest. Okay, what are you thinking? That we should get ahead of this with our suppliers? I'm not sure that's necessary. This war is not going to last that long. I mean, come on. Our boys would make quick work of those Nazis. The sun disappears behind a cloud and it's suddenly chilly. Fred pulls his terry cloth beach robe tighter around him. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say, but I don't know. They've got the Blitzkrieg, Luftwaffe, those insane Japanese kamikaze pilots. And if there's rationing, a lot of things will be scarce. Like silk. And that nylon stuff from DuPont. I hear the government's going to need all the silk and nylon they can get to make parachutes for the army. Bernie stops fidgeting with a tennis ball. My wife goes through stockings like you do girlfriends. I spent a fortune on silk. Fred senses his brother might be coming around. Yeah, but really, I bet we could make a killing one day if we start buying up stockings now. And trust me, I know what women want. Bernie takes his brother's advice. He borrows $20 million and stockpiles as much nylon, silk, rubber, and metal goods as he can find. But if Fred's wrong, gimbals will land in such a deep hole they might never recover. And even if they do recoup their losses, they'll have a hard time catching up with their rival. Macy's has opened stores across the country and installed a new leader at the helm, Jack Strauss. Reed thin and reserved, Jack wanted to be a jazz pianist, not run the family business. And Bernie knows Jack's got a big chip on his shoulder. After all, he's from a long line of power brokers, senators, ambassadors, friends of presidents. If Bernie were in his shoes, with a hunger to prove he was more than just the boss's pampered son, destroying Gimbel Brothers would be the way to go. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. 
Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, Macy's opened new stores, dazzled customers with promotional stunts, and hired an ace copywriter to promote their growing national brand. Gimbel's is looking to shake up the rivalry by acquiring the luxury clothing store Saks, keeping a foot in both camps by appealing to frugal and fashionable shoppers. But the wild card for both brands is whether the U.S. will go to war. If Fred Gimbel is right that the war might go on for a while, then they'll need to act before the military ramps up and rationing begins. Gimbel's will have to stockpile merchandise and build warehouses to store goods. It's the Gimbel brothers' riskiest and most expensive bet yet. This is Episode 5, Wartime Wagers. It's a clear, mild Monday in August 1941, but the hosiery department of Gimbel's Herald Square is so jammed with shoppers it looks like Christmas, and they're acting desperate. Hundreds of secretaries and shop girls on their lunch hours stand shoulder to shoulder around the L-shaped counter. A harried department manager stuffs a new roll of paper in the cash register. The crowd surges forward, pressing a woman up against the edge of the wooden counter. Hey, quit shoving, what are we, animals? All over the city, women are panicking. The government has just announced that nylon and silk are only to be used for military purposes. An elegant matron in pearls bursts through Gimbel's front door. Where's the stocking counter? Fred and Bernie Gimbel watch from the sidelines. Fred's grin stretches ear to ear. Then he turns to the department manager, who's finally done fixing the cash register. Help that customer who just came in and then call security and get some guards down here. I don't want anybody getting hurt. And go grab some extra sales help from the typing pool, would you? Yes, sir, Mr. Gimble. You got it. Fred turns to Bernie. Well, brother, we haven't even officially entered the war yet, and already the ladies are worried about covering their gams. Isn't it great that we have enough stockings to last through doomsday? You're welcome. Bernie gives him a mock bow and doffs his hat. He's used to Fred saying, I told you so. But one stocking stampede doesn't convince him that they're in the clear yet. But sure enough, throughout the war and after, periodic shortages plague American shoppers. More often than not, Gimbel's is the only place they can find appliances, stockings, soap, and all sorts of other goods. And Gimbel's has just the wonderkind to make the most of their wartime strategy. It's a Friday in July, 1945, five years since Bernice Fitzgibbon jumped ship for Gimbel's. From her office window, she can almost make out the award-winning slogan she wrote for Macy's in six-foot-tall letters on the side of their building. It's smart to be thrifty. 
Bernice crams her notebook into her black leather purse. She's packing up to go visit family. Her flight to Milwaukee takes off in three hours. Suddenly, Fred Gimbel bursts into her office. Bernice, you're not going away for the weekend, are you? We don't have an end-of-summer sales campaign yet. Bernice is eager to leave. So to get her boss out the door, she says exactly what he wants to hear. Mr. Gimbel, I'll leave a slogan that can run in every ad till I get back. I promise. Fred gives her a thumbs up. Bernice already delivered their single most effective ad campaign ever, built around Gimbel's as the getter of ungettable scarce goods. She did it with just three words. Gimbel's has it. But now, Bernice is sweating bullets. She's sure she's going to miss her plane. She's got nothing. For weeks, she's been mulling over how to say that no other store has lower prices. Hmm, no one sells for less doesn't work because no one is so feeble. But how about nobody? That's a full-bodied word. Let's see. Nobody undersells gimbals. Now, too blunt. She taps out a rhythm with the palm of her hand on her desk. Sometimes this helps. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Suddenly, Bernice gets one of her lightning bolts. Her staff calls them Fitzkriegs. Nobody but nobody undersells gimbals. Bernice makes her flight. And nobody but nobody becomes another overnight advertising sensation and catchphrase. The slogan even crosses the Atlantic. When Winston Churchill visits America, he turns to his dinner partner and asks, Is it really true that nobody but nobody undersells gimbals? Customers stream into gimbals like never before. So Bernie and Fred double down. After World War II ends in August, they offer endless lots of Army surplus merchandise at insanely reduced prices. Studebaker trucks for $2,900 each. British Army light portable motorcycles at $188 each. The war may have ended, but the battle between Macy's and Gimbel's is heating up. Manufacturers pivot from weapons production to consumer goods, and Americans are eager to buy again after years of austerity. Snazzy new products abound, and consumers are lured in by radio and TV advertising. Gimbel's starts selling a novelty pen called the Reynolds Rocket. Bernice Fitzgibbons describes it as an atomic-era miraculous ballpoint pen that even writes underwater. Suddenly, every American seems to want a rocket in their pocket. It's October 29th, 1945. The sidewalk outside of Gimbel's on Broadway looks like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Thousands of shoppers are trying to wedge their way into the already jam-packed store trying to get their hands on this pen. Get out of the road, you morons! Traffic is so snarled that NYPD officers abandon their cars blocks away and run toward the mayhem outside Gimbel's. Everyone remain calm. You must clear the street. That day, Gimbel sells 10,000 Reynolds rockets, 30,000 by the end of the week. But Macy's rejects the original model. Their testers find that not only does the pen not ride well, it also leaks. 
Then Macy's introduces an improved model, and a ferocious price war breaks out between the two stores, and Macy's finds itself on defense. It's three days later at Macy's annual stockholders meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio. Macy's president, Jack Strauss, stands behind the podium of the convention center's auditorium, looking uncomfortable. Men in dark suits fill nearly every available seat. A shareholder stands up. Mr. Strauss, the papers say Gimbel's is winning the price wars with its advertising and Macy's is losing leadership to them. Is that true? Strauss is embarrassed. He rubs the back of his neck, stalling for time. I don't think so. The next day, Fred Gimbel catches wind of the kerfuffle at Macy's annual meeting and has Bernice write up a new ad. It's a personal challenge to Jack Strauss. He reads it out loud in her office. I, Frederick Gimbel, bet Jack Strauss any amount of money he cares to name that he can't disprove our claim that nobody but nobody has ever beaten Gimbel's at keeping prices down. Strauss doesn't respond to the challenge. But the numbers tell a damning story. Before the war, Gimbel's had annual sales of $20 million, less than a quarter of Macy's yearly gross. After the war, Gimbel's skyrockets to $70 million. Macy's may still be ahead with $90 million in annual sales, but Gimbel's is gaining momentum and has a clear view of number one. Even better for Gimbel's, a surprise court ruling will force Macy's to rethink their most cherished discount policy. And as Gimbel's joins forces with other competitors, it will be nipping at the heels of the industry's longtime top dog. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's the Friday before Memorial Day, 1951, Macy's, Herald Square. On the 13th floor, an emergency meeting of the top-tier management team has hit the skids. The bar cart is in disarray and half-filled highball glasses and dirty coffee cups clutter every surface. 
The company's new president, 42-year-old Bobby Weil, is lean and nervous. He takes a sip of cold coffee and grimaces. Jesus, somebody tell them we need some fresh coffee in here. A VP waves an empty cup at the secretary seated on the other side of the glass wall. A federal court in Louisiana has just handed down a decision that will change everything for department stores across the nation. And Macy's is seriously rattled. Before the ruling, the price of a brand name product like a Westinghouse toaster was locked in. The price was the same no matter if you were at Macy's or Gimbel's. But now, manufacturers can no longer set a minimum price for brand name goods. The ruling takes pricing out of the manufacturer's hands and leaves it up to retailers. And that means Macy's has just lost its competitive advantage. The company has always guaranteed customers that if they pay cash instead of credit, the price will be 6% less than their competitors. The exception was hot ticket brand name items like Westinghouse toasters. Going into Memorial Day weekend, a major shopping holiday, Macy's has to decide, will they lower the cost of everything, including name brands, by 6%? If they undercut their competitors, that could mean launching the price war to end all price wars. Macy's chairman Jack Strauss looks as waspy as ever in a dapper, narrow, striped silk tie. In college, he had no aspirations to be a businessman. Unlike his father and uncle, he's an introverted artist type and can come off as stiff. He's not popular with the staff. He turns to Weil. Bobby, you know how I feel. Ever since R.H. Macy opened his store on 14th Street, the Macy's motto has always been 6% less for cash. It's our unique advantage. And now we can offer it on every product in the store. Weil takes off his glasses to rub his bloodshot eyes. Yes, Jack, but if we do that, Gimbel's, Stearns, and God knows who else could do the same thing, and they don't have to stop at 6%. You know, they could drive us into the ground. Strauss slumps in his chair. They're all quiet for a moment, and then Wilde pipes up again to lay out the risks. Gimbel's has the best relationship with drug manufacturers, so they'll be able to undersell us on those. And Bloomingdale's could do the same with menswear and books. Instead of across-the-board discounts, well, what if we test the waters and cut tags selectively? Strauss looks around the table at the exhausted team. He knows that as chairman, he should step aside and let Weil take charge. You're the boss of Macy's East Coast region. I'll stand by your decision. But every shopper across the country has heard the Macy's slogan, 6% less for cash. It's in almost every ad they've ever run since R.H. Macy's Day. Wilde's not sure he wants to take the rap for ditching the promise Macy built his empire on. But if he makes the wrong choice and the competition coordinates to match selective pricing, Macy's could lose its shirt. The company's never posted an annual loss ever in the whole history of the store. Wilde's afraid he'll go down as the guy who blows that record. But in the end, he decides to stand by the Macy's Creed and places a Memorial Weekend ad trumpeting discounts on every single product, nearly 6,000 in all. And that is a call to arms for Macy's rivals who ready themselves for a painful 
price war. June 1st, 1951, on the 12th floor of Macy's Herald Square, the Comparison Shopping Department. Hansen swivels in her chair and hands a stack of yellow paper slips to a young woman in a sensible navy cardigan standing at the far end of the desk. She's one of 70 employees drafted from their usual jobs to find out what other stores are charging for the same merchandise. Hansen briskly explains the assignment to the new recruit. Go to Gimbel's, Bloomingdale's, Abraham and Strauss, and Wanamaker's. Write down their prices on any old piece of paper, but don't you dare do it while you're in the store. You're undercover, got it? The recruit nods and darts out the door. Miss Herda Hansen goes back to answering the calls from the other undercover shoppers and setting Macy's prices in response to what they tell her. But everything is happening fast. Hansen calls up a sales clerk she's put in charge of posting the latest prices for hot sale items on a large blackboard. Hello, Sandy. I've got the new drug markdowns. Ready? Okay, Miss Hansen. I'm ready. Go ahead. Lavoris mouthwash, 40 cents at Bloomingdale's. We're selling it for 42. You better go to 38. 38, got it. Okay, what's next? Bizadol and acid, 90 at Bloomingdale's, 92 here. Mark it down to 84. Down on the Macy's sales floor, shoppers paw through tables and counters piled high with products. Over the den, a woman shouts a warning to a sales clerk. What's the price on this toaster right now? If I find it for less at Gimbel's, I'll return it. A Macy's sales clerk furiously erases the price for Toastmaster toasters on the blackboard and scribbles in $3.23. Macy's is racing to beat rival stores on prices. With so many people trying to simultaneously enter the Macy's to shop or leave with their bargains, the revolving door can't handle the traffic. A hinge breaks, and the heavy glass and metal door jams and traps four people. Once Macy's strategy becomes clear, its competitors conspire to retaliate immediately. They divvy up the products to discount. Bloomingdale's takes books, Gimbel's takes drugs, a third appliances, and so on. Bobby Weil sits in his office all day and refuses to take calls. Just as he feared, his decision has set off the biggest price war in the city's history. It's a catastrophe. In the ensuing months, Macy's racks up so many losses that the company has to sell WOR, the radio station they've owned since 1929. Strauss fires his cousin, Bobby Weil. At the next annual meeting... Chairman of the board, Jack Strauss, gives his stockholders the bad news. After more than a century in business, the company has suffered its first annual loss ever. But Macy's doesn't buckle. Something it hadn't counted on happens. The price wars attract so many bargain seekers to the flagship store that many of them end up becoming regular Macy's customers. In the post-war period, thousands of Americans have money to spend and are moving from the cities to larger homes in neighborhoods popping up in the suburbs. Retailers scramble to stake out new territory. In the next episode, the war tumbles onto its new battlefield, the suburban shopping mall, 
Lots of department stores have failed or been acquired, but Macy's and Gimbel's are still at each other's throats when Gimbel's hatches its riskiest plan yet. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, it would be terrific if you could give us a five-star rating, and while you're at it, tell your friends how to subscribe. There's another way you can support us. Just go over to Wondery.com survey and answer a few questions. And while you're at it, tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear next. We should say something about the conversations in today's episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Barbara Bogay wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor, edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. For over 100 years, General Motors was America's automaker. But after the 2008 financial crisis, the storied car company nearly died. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, host of Wondery's show, Business Movers. We tell the true stories of business leaders who risked it all, the critical moments that define their journey, and the ideas that transform the way we live our lives. In our latest series, an HR executive named Mary Barra rises to become General Motors' first female CEO, just in time to save the company from ruin. But as Mary fights to lead General Motors into the future, tragedy strikes. Listen to General Motors Back from the Dead from Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the Wondery app. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.